All right, welcome back to another episode of the Future Cities podcast. I'm your host for the month, Stephen Elser. Uh, so this month, we'll be chatting with two scientists in the URX SRN about a paper that they'd recently published called Tempora Evolution of Green Stormwater Infrastructure Strategies in Three U.S. Cities. Um, now, if you want a refresher or an introduction to the topic of green infrastructure, I'd recommend going back and listening to one of our previous episodes in which we define the term and provide some history, as well as discussing a really incredible system of wetlands in Valdivia, Chile. Um, and that episode is available in English and Spanish. But without further ado, let's get to our guests. Joining us today is Lauren McPhillips and Marissa Matzler. Lauren is an assistant professor at Penn State University in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks, Stephen. And Marissa is a postdoctoral researcher at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies. Welcome, Marissa. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining us today. Uh, before we jump in, uh, I'd just like to give the listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit more. Um, so could each of you tell us a little bit about your general research interests, uh, why it interests you so much, and how did you get to where you are now? Sure, I'll go ahead. Um, this is Lauren, and I consider myself both a hydrologist and an ecological engineer. I'm really interested in how we manage stormwater in developed areas and how we can learn from nature and use more ecological approaches when we manage stormwater so that we can create more sustainable and resilient cities. I've worked both on the sort of really small-scale nitty-gritty design elements of green stormwater infrastructure, like how different soil types in these features might influence their water quality function. But then I've also done some work like what we're talking about today, taking a wider um, look at how cities are planning and implementing green infrastructure. I used to study water quality in more rural areas, but I realized you know, cities are a huge area of growth. More and more people are living in cities. And so there's so much opportunity for thinking about how to better design more sustainable cities so that, you know, people and the environment can live in in harmony. <laughs> um, yes. And hello, um, I'm Marissa. I am a social scientist myself, um, but I'm also uh, an interdisciplinarian. So I began um, with a degree in marine biology and got into environmental management. And so a lot of my work, a lot of my motivation um, begins from uh, the ocean and protecting uh, creatures in the ocean and thinking about how what we do on the land and what cities um, are doing and putting out on the land, how that ends up uh, influencing the rest of the environment. So that's a lot of my uh, motivation. Um, and these days, uh, my research is focused on green infrastructure policy. So as a social scientist, I primarily speak with uh, staff at municipalities, uh, policymakers, decision makers, engineers, um, other folks, and, and try to understand how, how we're designing green infrastructure. How do people think about nature in the city and how does that influence uh, the green infrastructure that we see on the ground? Um, one of the, the most fun projects that I um, have been a part of is asking and interviewing uh, residents and people uh, living in cities about uh, their perspective of green infrastructure. How, what do they think of it? Do they like it? Do they dislike it? Um, how, does it how does it influence their lives? So uh, that's some of the work that I'm doing now. And it's great to be able to work uh, with folks like Lauren and others on the Eurex project, really putting together the social with the ecological and the technological. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, sounds fun. Yeah. Challenging too, I imagine. Indeed, indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for those introductions. 
Uh, so let's go ahead and go into the paper now. Uh, so right in the title, it mentions green stormwater infrastructure. Um, and so I, I just, I guess for our listeners first, can we just give us a brief definition of what green infrastructure is and then specifically what's green stormwater infrastructure? Sure. Yeah. And as as you guys will know from some of our past episodes, uh, the term green infrastructure is a contested term. So there is not one um, definition out there. Uh, but generally what what folks are talking about when they when they say green infrastructure is uh, the use of natural systems or nature. So soils and plants, uh, vegetated spaces uh, to provide utility services Um and so in, in the U.S., primarily we're focused on what uh, natural areas can provide in the terms of stormwater services, so both uh, treatment and storage of stormwater. So when we, when we mention green stormwater infrastructure, we're talking both about existing uh, natural areas, but also um, human-built infrastructure that takes advantage of uh, vegetation and soils, includes those things as components um, to, to deal with stormwater uh, within the city. So one of the reasons that green stormwater infrastructure is particularly important um, is that oftentimes we, when we design um, and fund and think about infrastructure in the United States, we're, we're usually thinking about uh, human-built infrastructure. So we, we term this the gray infrastructure. Uh, things like storage tanks to hold on to uh, flood uh, flood control measures, um, or uh, a drinking water treatment plant uh, to be able to uh, provide clean drinking water to us. And so most of our systems at the municipal scale, a lot of our um, asset management systems, our other funding systems, our maintenance systems, are all set up to take care of uh, these human-built systems. So when we start to include uh, living components, uh, the trees, the soils, things like this, vegetated land into, into the category of infrastructure, we actually have to, we, we, we come up against some challenges. Um, and so we need to work through those, uh, from my perspective, uh, we need to work through those institutionally um, and also learn how these systems are working uh, from an ecological, a hydrological point of view as well. Great. Thank you. Uh, so... Related to all that, you mentioned how you know traditionally when we're thinking about ways to manage stormwater, we think of gray infrastructure solutions. Uh, so I, I was wondering, can can one of you just provide a, just a brief history of how stormwater has traditionally been managed in the U.S. over time? Sure. So you know, back when cities first started developing, not surprisingly, you know, we were. There wasn't much being done with stormwater yet. Basically, you know, buildings and roads. Um, were were being put in, and um, people started to notice that these uh, sort of human built features were having an impact on where the rain could move in the landscape, and were starting to cause problems with flooding. So, as these surfaces were being built, that we call impervious surfaces, buildings or roads where the rain can't soak in, um, the uh, there started to be more flooding, and so cities started realizing they needed to build storm sewer pipe networks to help get rid of the stormwater that was now occurring on the streets and to help route it into streams and away from the city so we weren't having, um, you know, issues with people or horses or vehicles or whatever being able to get around. 
Um, this made new problems, though, because then, because we're helping to route this water really efficiently down to the streams, the streams started flooding and getting really eroded and, and becoming really flashy, as we like to call it. So, you know, floods getting bigger and happening faster. So a few decades ago, a lot of cities started implementing various stormwater control measures, as we call them, which are various um, features that we can um, put in the landscape that might help slow down and clean stormwater. So these are features like, say, a detention basin, which might um, receive water off of a street or a parking lot, detain it for a little bit, and then maybe infiltrate it or help it soak into, into the ground to get to groundwater, or it might help filter out pollutants and improve the water quality of the stormwater. And so there's lots of different types of these stormwater control measures out there. And um, there, there seems to be a transition that's been happening in these last more recent decades where um, the types being implemented are moving towards green or ecologically based features. And this was sort of the idea that, that we wanted to start thinking about in, in this analysis that we're talking about today. Awesome. Thank you. That was a, that was a great, uh, great little history lesson. Uh, so, but, but what, why would you say it's important for us to understand uh, sort of the way that green stormwater infrastructure implementation has changed and uh, to understand what type of, uh, of these infrastructure features are being implemented? Why is that important for us to understand? I think it's important to understand how these things are changing through time because it really... It changes our risk factors um, in cities. So if we are looking at th the way that we design our infrastructure today um, is going to is going to influence what risks are coming up later. So as as Lauren was just mentioning, you know, we, we started putting um, impervious surfaces in as, as cities were beginning. You know, we didn't really um, I don't think people really understood what kind of influence those would have through time. Um, but then as we started to see stormwater we, we created the stormwater problem uh, from some of those initial infrastructures that we began with. So it's, it's important to understand um, how what we're putting in today, uh, how that might change things in the future, kind of think about some of those unintended consequences, um, but also to be able to look at um, distribution of, of service delivery in cities as well. So if we can see what, what kinds of, um, infrastructure are being put in the ground, where they're being put in, and in what time frame, we can start to see what um, what services are being delivered and to whom across uh, cities. So we can really get into um, understanding uh, different different service distributions, perhaps potentially uneven distribution of services, and, and some of those unintended consequences in the future. So one of the things that we did um, in, in this paper was also think a little bit about uh, ecosystem service delivery across different types of green stormwater infrastructure. So uh, in, in, in this, this is kind of telling us, you know, there's a bunch of different kinds, uh, different types of green stormwater infrastructure we could put in the ground. So um, some of the human built ones are things like bioswales, rain gardens. Um, there's also just, you know, ditches on the side of the road. Um, we have other things uh, that are underground that are more gray infrastructure oriented. Um, and each of these is going to have different uh, ecosystem impacts and outcomes, as well as different social uh, impacts and outcomes. 
And so if we want to know what, um, what kinds of ecosystem services are being delivered in a city, we need to know actually what kind of green infrastructure is on the ground and um, at what quantities uh, and what time frame. And, and surprisingly, we, don't, we actually don't know much about that um, at, at this moment, um, looking across cities. So each city does have their, uh, have their own inventory of these things, but actually looking across cities and looking for similarities and differences, um, that was really what we were trying to get at in this, in this study. Yeah, and, and so something that I noticed just about the three cities that you compared, there, so for the people that haven't read this paper, the three cities uh, that were compared are Phoenix, Arizona, Baltimore, Maryland, and Portland, Oregon. And these cities are just really, really different from one another in terms of their location, their history, their climate, their politics, and a whole range of other of other factors. So I guess why compare such different cities? Uh, and what sort of challenges did you encounter while trying to make these comparisons? So you're definitely right. These are very different cities in some ways, but then of course there's similarities across them as well. Um, you know, so um, Portland, part of that city, its stormwater system is what we call a combined sewer system, um, where the sanitary sewers, you know, it's which drain our toilets and showers and stuff from our houses, um, can actually over can can be combined with water from the stormwater system when there's too much stormwater when it's really intense rain events and so we end up with um, um, overflows from the combined sewer systems into the river causes lots of bad water quality issues so anyways Portland has that which um, you know causes some regulatory things that I'm sure we'll talk about later related to stormwater. Um, but the other two cities don't have that. They have what we call separated sewer systems. Um, but, um, you know, Phoenix is a desert city and um, Baltimore is an older city um, with, you know, uh, that's on the Chesapeake Bay, which has a lot of water quality concerns. And so, you know, even though they're different, um, you know, we wanted to see how they might also be experiencing some similar transitions, um, how how different levels of governance, um, you know, through through similar federal regulations um, might have, you know, similar influences or whether like more local differences from these different factors might might um, play a bigger role. Um the, the convenient reason that we actually looked at these three cities is that they all happen to be part of this urban resilience to extremes network that you guys, I think, have heard about in previous podcast episodes. All of the cities, these cities and um, the others of the nine cities in our network are really excited about green infrastructure as an important strategy for managing stormwater. But these three cities happen to be the most experienced in um, implementing green stormwater infrastructure, and they all happen to have really extensive data sets of what types of green stormwater infrastructure they've put in and when. So we thought it could be really useful to look at their implementation strategies for our other cities that are still more in the earlier stages of considering how to implement green stormwater infrastructure. Um, in terms of the data, even though these cities had pretty good data, we still had to put in some effort to make it comparable. I think one of the biggest issues with trying to look at these different stormwater management strategies across these different cities is that 
a lot of the city, uh, like everybody kind of uses slightly different names or terminologies for these different features. So in Phoenix, they really go hardcore for what they call retention basins. That's the main facility they install. But the way it's designed, if you actually look at like the design specifications, it's actually more like what we would call an infiltration facility in other cities. So we definitely had to put in some work to unify these different terminologies. The categories that we ultimately came up with um, were filters, green roofs, infiltration facilities, basins, porous pavement, swales, underground filters, and other, which basically was for anything else that didn't fit into the other categories. Um, One of the other challenges was, um, you know, there certainly were bits of data missing in some cases, like we were really interested in how these things have been constructed over time. And of course, some of the features didn't have dates. But um, despite these issues, there was still a ton of really rich data there to learn from. And so it was really exciting to, you know, that these, the, um, you know, the stormwater utilities in these different cities were willing to share the data that with us that they had put a lot of effort into getting together. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like it would be, uh, be a lot of work. <laughs> so after you've collected all this data, what did you expect to find? And maybe more importantly, what did you actually find, uh, both in terms of the overall portfolios um, and then maybe the differences that you saw between cities? So I think one of the, one of the kind of like overarching themes that I already alluded to was that um, we came in with this idea that many cities are experiencing a transition from more gray gray stormwater control measures towards more green or ecologically based stormwater control measures. And even though like this is assumed in general across people who think about stormwater management, it hadn't really been sort of systematically analyzed. Um, And the cool thing was that our analysis of these three cities generally supported the fact that this transition was happening Um, for example, we saw in Portland that they put in a lot of underground filters early on, but then they've moved in recent decade or so much more towards these curbside vegetated swales that they call green streets. Um, Baltimore has also seen a pretty big transition towards more, uh, green or ecologically focused features, but then Phoenix, um, has has remained pretty focused on this one type of infiltration facility, though even they are starting to have a little implementation of some of these newer types of green stormwater infrastructure, like uh, these ones we call bioretention basins. Um, Overall, Portland definitely lived up to its reputation as being a leader in green infrastructure. Um, Certainly anyone that thinks about green infrastructure would think about Portland as one of the main cities that are known for this. And Portland Uh, had by far the greatest quantity of green stormwater infrastructure features. But then, um, you know, there were distinctive features of others, the other cities too, like Baltimore had um, the biggest diversity and types being implemented. And Phoenix had a surprising amount of um, these green stormwater infrastructure features for the fact that it's a desert city because they're really interested in, in flood control. And just, um, you know, one really cool observation that came up in the in the timelines that we constructed was how 
the implementation rate of um, these features plummets during the recession around like, you know, 2008 or so, because um, there the um, stormwater control measures, uh, the implementation of them is tightly driven by rules on development. Um, But I will let Marissa talk a little bit more about what we learned about some of these different drivers and such. Yeah, it was really interesting um, looking looking at some of the drivers, I think, especially in a comparative way, um, because, you know, when when people are talking about um, green infrastructure in the U.S., um, a lot of times it there's there's this reference back to uh, the EPA um, and, thinking, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency and thinking about their particular definition that's like pushing the stormwater um, focus and also um, the the push of the the Clean Water Act uh, to deal with combined sewer overflows uh, that Lauren was just talking about. So a lot of the conversation around green infrastructure usually revolves around this, um, uh, you know, combined sewer overflow space. And in and in Portland, we see that one of the big drivers or one of the big um, one of the big things that allowed green infrastructure to develop uh, in Portland was. Uh, uh, the consent decree uh, to deal with their combined sewer overflows. Um, and so they they ended up starting quite a bit sooner um, than many other cities in terms of addressing uh, combined sewer overflow with green infrastructure. So we're you know talking back in in the early 90s, uh, looking at ways that they could they could actually address this. Um, and so oftentimes, uh, you know, when it, then when you go to talk to folks in Baltimore, um, they often feel or they've expressed that, you know, they're, they're sort of outside the system. They're like, hey, guys, we don't have a combined sewer. You know, we have this separated sewer. So there are other reasons that we're doing green infrastructure. Um, and so we think that might have something to do with the different portfolios that we see um, in the two cities. So at, uh, in Portland, a lot of the driver is coming from uh, the, you know, the federal government, um, and the Clean Water Act saying, okay, you you need to deal with this uh, combined sewer overflow. And that really um, gave a lot of impetus, a lot of money being poured into, okay, how can we do this and allow green infrastructure to be one of the solutions? Um, whereas in, uh, in Baltimore, we see more of this influence of uh, the Chesapeake Bay uh, water, uh, water quality uh, issues there, and that at the state level, you see a much a much stronger push um, towards green infrastructure. So they actually have uh, stormwater management uh, design guidelines. So environmental sen- site design (ESD) um, was is put together um, at the state level and really pushed um, at the state level for Baltimore. And so that's where we're seeing a lot of the green infrastructure um, coming about. So this is, again, it's it's also closely tied with Phoenix. So in Baltimore and Phoenix, uh, the design guidelines and development are a big part of how green infrastructure is put in the ground. So while Portland uh, has quite a large uh, public um, program, so the city is actually building a lot of these green infrastructure, particularly uh, green streets, um, the, the rain gardens in the uh, in Portland there, in the bioswales. Um we see that in in Baltimore and in, or especially in Baltimore, that there's a lot more options uh, for developers to put in different kinds of facilities, uh, depending on what uh, what they need to do to meet um, the ESD guidelines. 
Um, and so also, again, yeah, it's so it was so fascinating to see that dip uh, with the recession in Phoenix, um, a, a development being such a such a large driver uh, with within Baltimore and in, in Phoenix. Yeah. And for our listeners, if you get a chance to go and read this paper that we that we're talking about, it's really striking to look at just the steep drop off in this uh, implementation after especially in Phoenix after the uh, recession. It's really, really um, interesting to look at. Um, and, you know, you know, Marissa, you've highlighted a lot of the differences um, in terms of these drivers in the cities, but could you talk a little bit more about their similarities? As, as far as similarities are concerned, though, perhaps I could say um, similarities. It is it is very interesting um, to see that uh, that while the the definitions and the terminology, as Lauren mentioned, are quite different across the cities um, and often people like to have their own their own terms for many of these things. It, it is surprising um, the the overlap in the uh, actual specifications of some of these facilities. Um, so what's what's interesting, um, I think, is also thinking about how uh, these specifications are shared across cities. So one of one of the interesting things in in having more discussions uh, between Portland and Baltimore um, is to note that uh, originally low impact development ideas were being developed um, in Florida and in Maryland. Um, and these ideas really influenced early on what was happening in Portland and how they were addressing uh, their combined sewer overflow. So those um, standards and specifications came originally from the East Coast to Portland, but then were standardized even further and, and, and specified uh, in Portland. And then when Baltimore was beginning to uh, to look for standards um, for their bioswale facilities, they actually used uh, Portland's uh, specifications uh, first off uh, when they started to build the first facilities um, and then and then again adjusted those through time as they saw how they fit in their locality. So there's a lot of sharing across um, across these cities. Um, and I think that that lends itself to show that there are more similarities across the across the cities than uh, you might expect, even though, as we mentioned earlier, they're they're quite different um, in terms of climate uh, context, age and, and these other things factors. Yeah, right. That and that that seems pretty surprising to me anyway that they did share so many similarities uh, given, you know, how how you mentioned you know, how different they they really are. Um but were you or either of you surprised by anything else that you uh, that you found? I mean, Marissa already pointed it out a little bit, but I think it's useful to to mention again just how um you know, there's this assumption that federal regulations in general are a really important driver of these sorts of new stormwater management strategies, but yet, um, you know, two of the cities, Baltimore and Phoenix, again, don't have um, the sort of federal regulatory hammer, as Marissa <laughs> likes to call it, yeah. <laughs> of um, CSO control plans. Um, and yet they still have a lot of this sort of green stormwater infrastructure development. And, um I can't remember if we mentioned this earlier, but, you know, EPA, um, you know, EPA is, of course, the agency that's that's um, managing a lot of the regulations at the federal level. And they officially endorsed green infrastructure as a so-called wet weather infrastructure solution for managing stormwater in 2007. But yet, um, we, you know, we saw implementation in all the cities of various sorts of strategies mm -hmm. well before yeah. that. 
it points to sh- to show that this is a longer trend that's been building for for quite a while in cities, and now I think just has just has a name. It has uh, terminology uh, associated with it. I was also surprised too, just how much. Um how many stormwater control measures that Phoenix had, you know, we think of a desert city, like it doesn't rain much. Why do they need much in the way of stormwater management infrastructure? But when it rains, it really rains quite intensely and, and flooding can be a big issue. And so um, they have really the, the regional flood control authority there, um, which is called the flood control district of Maricopa County. They have, they passed regulations, you know, a while back, mandating that, um, you know, a certain size, um, the, a certain amount of water coming off of, um, you know, new development be able to be retained in, um, you know, some sort of stormwater control measure when any new development is put in. And so, um, and so for like three, more than three decades now, um, you know, Phoenix has had implementation of these um like mostly what they these these infiltration facilities with with any new development going in and so they've built up a lot of these features around the landscape mm-hmm. yeah that that is i think will be pretty surprising to people that maybe aren't from phoenix that we do have so many uh stormwater control measures in such a dry place it, it is kind of funny so now that so this paper gives us a better understanding of uh of sort of what the the current and historical state of this green stormwater implementation is, uh, but could you tell us a little bit of what uh, a little bit about the implications uh, of these different implementation strategies in the cities? Yeah, so as Marissa said earlier, this was obviously a big motivation for doing this analysis. Was that um, you know these different sorts of of green stormwater infrastructure features have different sorts of functions and, and benefits. And so um, we, we looked at the sort of types that were being implemented and tried to, um, you know, think a little bit about what the implications were for benefits. And one, one challenge for sure was that there's not a lot of data out there on this stuff. You know, there are some, um, you know, there's, there were data on maybe a few specific functions or, you know, data for specific features and not necessarily in these cities. So, you know, while there, while there was some to work with, this is definitely an opportunity um, to, to collect more data and on this sort of stuff to, to make sure that these functions or services that we're assuming um, these features are providing are actually being provided. So that being said, um, what we what we could say from what we found was that you know with this transition to more ecologically based features um there um there is more potential for water quality improvement as uh, as well as other sorts of co-benefits um so you know there's been some work that's been comparing these sorts of different strategies like sort of these older strategies like you know, big retention ponds to some of these newer um, green stormwater infrastructure strategies like bioretention basins, which show that um, some of these newer features can provide better um, runoff reduction, better removal of certain pollutants like sediment or nitrogen. So, you know, we do think that there is, um, there's a, there's this transitioning happening to um, enhanced um, 
water quality as well. And, um, you know, there's this assumption about a lot of these, you know, other co-benefits like us, you know, that there's aesthetic improvement and that there might be like, you know, an enhanced habitat for some of these things. And there were little bits of data on that, but it was hard to hard to find a lot to, to really support that notion strongly. Um, in Phoenix, there's an interesting example um, about the implications for function. I mentioned how they really um, mostly construct these infil- infiltration facilities, but these facilities do actually vary in their ground cover. Um, they can have either turf grass, gravel, or xeriscaping, which is basically desert vegetation. And so these grass basins um, can provide the benefit of cooling in, you know, Phoenix, which can be super hot at times of the year, um, based on evapotranspiration from the grass. And in some places, it's really cool that they actually use these basins for athletic fields because um, they build them to be really big and shallow. And so you actually see like baseball diamonds in some of these. However, oh, yeah, I, yeah I, I played uh, I played soccer in some of those retention <laughs> basins when I was a little kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's super cool. And, and it was like, you know, people talk about these things being multifunctional and it was really neat to see that actually being the case. But of course, this turf grass has to be irrigated to stay alive there. And so it requires input of lots of water, which is a big deal in a desert city. Um, the xeric basins, on the other hand, don't require water inputs other than periodic stormwater, of course. Um, and they do have potential to provide habitat for uh, things like insects um, or, or maybe even birds. But then you do lose that cooling benefit that comes from the turf grass. Um, over time, we did see that there has been less construction of the turf grass basin. So it was, it was um, nice to see that because we generally think that, you know, the, the benefits are, um, you know, there's probably, it's probably good to mostly move towards these more, uh, uh, the, the Zurich and the gravel sorts of basins. Um, and, you know, there's generally been increased awareness of water use. And so that's probably started to drive this transition to not have quite so many of the turf grass basins. Great. Um, I, oh, I, ahead, I, I, yeah, I would add also um, uh, just to kind of uh, build on that and talk um, a bit about yeah some of the cultural ecosystem services and the aesthetics that Lauren um, mentioned. Uh, one, one of the interesting things in thinking about these, these different features is um, – Green infrastructure is interesting because it brings people more directly um, uh, engaged with their infrastructure. So often, you know, stormwater infrastructure has been under the ground. Um, You know, there's big, uh, again, like tanks and infiltration basins and pipes all under underground that people don't usually see them or think about them day to day. And so a lot of the features that we were looking at here, these basins, for example, Stephen, that you played soccer in and um, other, you know, bioswales in Portland on the side of the street, uh, people are people are interacting directly with these sometimes in in positive ways and sometimes in negative ways. Um, And so I think that's something that is a big uh, implication uh, for for planning moving forward and also for uh, what services are provided and to whom uh, within cities. So. Uh, definitely something uh, for us to think about more uh, as as we go along with this research. Uh, yeah. So in that vein, you mentioned going along with this research. Do you guys have uh, future plans uh, to build off of this work? 
Yeah, I mean, we, um, you know, we certainly are interested in digging more into these, these drivers, you know, we really just did sort of a cursory um, um, search of like planning documents. And we did some, um, you know, consulting with some various stormwater managers in the cities, but like, getting more into some more extensive interviews would be really interesting to learn a a bit more about, um, you know, what's truly been some of the drivers, because there's things that aren't really captured in planning documents, like say, the changes in technologies, or the fact that there was like a a mayor or some other political appointee who was just really excited about green infrastructure. So those things are a little bit harder to get at in terms of seeing what's influenced these transitions. And, um, in like like I was saying earlier, we need we really need more data on some of these different functions. Um, you know, and I've been thinking about this a bit, but Stephen, of course, our uh, awesome uh, host here, me. has some plans, right, to to try to get at some of that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, go out in some of the green infrastructure features in Phoenix and measure some typically uh, desired uh, ecosystem services, things like heat mitigation and infiltration rates and things like that. Uh, So yeah, hopefully we'll have some more on the ground physical data to pair with some of the work that you're, that you two have already uh, put in. That is awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah. And I, yeah, ideally we'll hopefully once I sort of get used to the methods and whatnot uh, here in Phoenix, that I hope to expand this to other cities and, you know, draw comparisons and similar features in different cities and see, uh, you know, sort of compare how their functions uh, differ or how they're the same. And one one of the other things that that this reminds me of too is um, what one of the one of the things that I think the group is interested in following up on is how is how maintenance influences all the things that we're talking about here today. Um, right, how is right, that going right. to change uh, the function of these through time? And in thinking about funding of infrastructure, maintenance is always e- extremely difficult uh, to to obtain funds for. Uh, it's it's just it's just not as exciting to talk about you know fixing the pipes as it is to build something new and shiny. Um, and so I think that's another thing that we're really hoping to move forward on is to look at maintenance plans across these cities um, and see how that is potentially uh, also a driver uh, or a, something that's influencing what kinds of uh, facilities are put in the ground. Um, and maybe moving forward, uh, some cities might be changing their green infrastructure portfolio uh, depending on the maintenance uh, problems or successes that they have seen. So excited to work on that next. I was totally thinking of you earlier today, Marissa, because I was walking around campus and saw some uh-huh. bioretention basins that still had water days after it rained, even though they're supposed to be well draining. And I was wondering what's going on. I don't know that they've been maintained right because <laughs> they're, not, uh, there you they're go. not doing the functions they're supposed to be right now. <laughs> so at this point, unfortunately, Lauren's internet cut out, so we couldn't hear anymore. Uh, And earlier, I'd asked both Lauren and Marissa to think of a summary of their paper in the form of a haiku, so we'll just go ahead and jump to me asking Marissa about that. Uh, I guess then we'll move on to the the moment of truth, and this will all be on you, Marissa. Could you summarize your paper in the form of a haiku? I I would just like to mention uh, the number of syllables that green stormwater infrastructure contains. It's it's a little excessive. So um, this this was (laughs) tricky for us. Um, Let's see. 
green infrastructure, how does it change through space-time? Let's take a look. Beautiful. Absolutely <laughs> stunning. Oh, she's back. Hey, so I totally got dropped. Yeah, we, hey, yeah. you're back. So do you want to hear my haiku? Oh, yes. Yes, we'd love to hear your haiku. What's your haiku? Green infrastructure, three cities, three different ways to deal with water. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you both so much. Those were were wonderful haikus. Uh, I just want to thank our guests, Lauren McPhillips and Marissa Maxler, for their time, their expertise, and their voices. Uh, And thank you for listening. And as always, if you have any questions about what you've heard or have suggestions for future episodes, you can reach out to us at Future Cities Pod on Twitter or Future Cities Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.